Amen. Amen. Thank you, CJ and family. You guys really got began to get with it and get loose on Go Tell It on the Mountain. I mean, we almost broke out in praise. <laughs> that I thought if we only had a banjo and a mandolin and a fiddle. Anybody play those instruments? If so, call the church office. We'll get you in place, and we'll, we'll do that together. While we're finishing here, I just want to reiterate, Carrie Newhoff is a researcher in church life, and he said last week that 82% of unchurched people would go to a church service if a friend they knew invited them, and only 2% of Christians ever invite anyone. Pretty staggering statistics. Let's not be a part of those statistics. Every one of us could give this to someone, and every one of us could pick up several more at the connection desk out there, and I hope that you'll do that. And let's just pray and see what God might do at Christmas Eve to draw some folks uh, to himself. And I want to share one other, other thing. In January, we're going to launch what we're calling 21 Days of Prayer as a church, beginning January 10th. Um, we're going to ask as many of us as possible to sign up for one hour a week to pray. And you'll get a call or a text from the person praying the hour before you. And after you finish your hour, you'll text or call someone praying after you. So if I choose, we'll do from five o'clock in the morning until midnight and try to fill up an entire week of slots where people are praying. Someone is praying every hour. Uh, so if I'm praying on Tuesday, from 3 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock, I'll get a text or a call or an email. I'm passing it to you, Sam. And then at 4 o'clock, I'll call the next person in line. And we're going to have uh, some helps that will guide us. You say, I'm not sure I can pray for an hour. I think you'll be surprised how quickly that hour goes as you follow a, kind of a schedule and some prayer things that we'll be adding. So I just mentioned that because we'll be, at the beginning of the year, we'll give, we'll give all of us an opportunity to sign up for an hour, and I hope that um, I really hope we we seek the Lord together as a church. We'll also be opening the building, opening this room Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday mornings, beginning January 10th, for anyone at 6:30 in the morning to come pray until seven. So if you're able to get to work at uh, after seven, that's great. But from 6:30 to seven, and the elders haven't heard this yet, but I'm going to ask you guys to help with that and be here at 6.30. So, uh, and we'll, we'll have a genuine prayer meeting in that month as well. We haven't set the date yet. That's just kind of a heads up uh, for all of us. You ever notice how many emotions there are in the Christmas story? You've got shock and wonder and curiosity when the angels appear to the shepherds. Uh, you've got joy that breaks out in, in Mary as she sings her song uh, you've got fear in Herod as he hears about the little baby that, that is being born. Uh, all kinds of emotions. You have sorrow. There's one part of the Christmas story that is not ready for, Holly, for Hallmark movie time. It's the story that's found in Matthew 2, 16 through 18. Let me simply read it to us. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, 
This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Can you imagine the sadness, the shock, and the grief as moms and dads see their little toddlers ripped out from their arms by Roman soldiers killed before their very eyes? We live in a broken world, and we're all broken ourselves. There's a lot of emotions, different emotions in the Christmas story. And there's a lot of emotions that people feel around Christmas time. I think Christmas intensifies emotions, both joy and sorrow. Some of you are going to head into Christmas with a lot of joy. You've got a joy right now. You've got a new baby at home. And you think, this is going to be a great Christmas. Or maybe you've moved into a new house and you've decorated it. And you think, this is going to be such a good Christmas. Or you've got family coming in and you've not seen them a long time. And it just fills you with joy. Or it fills you with sorrow. I'm not sure which which one. There's a lot of joy that takes place at Christmas. And there's a lot of sadness that takes place at Christmas. Maybe you know someone or maybe yourself, you've had some medical tests. You're not sure that this might be the last Christmas you ever have. You've got sorrow because of, of a wayward child. Or you've got a child who is suffering. Or a family member who is suffering. And it seems like nothing that is done can be helpful with, with them. You may be alone this Christmas. And if you're alone at Christmas, you're really alone. There may be an empty chair in the living room and an empty spot at the table. And it's going to hit you really hard this Christmas. Some of us have life and lives that we didn't really want. This is not what we expected. So you've got joy and you've got sorrow. And the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 7, he said, this is what the Christian life is like. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I'll tell you another reason why this Christmas is going to be really tough for many in this room. One year ago, the chairman of the elders stood before you and read Todd's statement that he was involved in an inappropriate relationship and that he was resigning. And then we heard Todd suffered a stroke. Nobody came to church one year ago expecting to hear anything like that. Many are still wondering about Jim Johnson. What happened there? Then staff began to resign. Adam, Tyler, and Rebecca, Jordan. We watched friends leave. Good friends who are not here this morning. They've They move somewhere else. Elders and staff exhausted by multiple meetings every week. The remaining staff just reeling, wondering when the next shoe is going to drop. And so some of us are heading into Christmas with anger or suspicion or a sense of betrayal, uncertainty at every level. And that's on top of mask mandates and lockdowns and this new epidemic and runaway inflation. So I think this Christmas is going to be like 50-50. I think half of us are going to be just, our joy is going to be intensified. And I think half of us, our sorrow is going to be intensified. 
And the reality is, I'm going to preach this morning on sorrow at Christmas. I have never preached this before. I've never, you know, Christmas is happy time. But the reality is every single one of us is going to grieve during life. You cannot get out of this life without having your heart torn apart and grieving. Someone said if pain had a voice, we would hear screaming right now, even from in this room. So what do you, what do, you do when, you, when your heart is broken? What do you do when you're uncertain and you're just filled with so much grief? What, what do you do? You can't stop living. The world doesn't stop. You have to get up in the morning. You got to get clothes on. You got to go to work. Got to work all day. Got to relate to people. Got to come home and somehow find a way to go to sleep at night. And in the morning, you got to get up and do the whole thing again. We have to learn to do life with a broken heart sometimes. Sometimes we just kind of muddle through to the best that we can. So, how do you live with a broken heart? How do you do that? There are two ways. There is the world's way, which we might call the typical way of sorrow management. And there's Jesus' way, the biblical way. He's called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the wonderful counselor has a way of working through and dealing with sorrow and sadness and grief. So what I want to do is I want to contrast these two ways because they could not be more different. I want to tell you a story. I heard it a long time ago and found it again recently. When five-year-old Johnny's dog suddenly dies, Johnny is stunned, and he burst out crying. His dog has been his constant companion, slept at the foot of his bed, now is dead, and little Johnny is a five-year-old basket case. And Johnny's parents are caught off guard and they don't know what to say, and they want to relieve his pain. So dad finally says, Johnny, don't feel bad. On Saturday, we'll get you a new dog. And Johnny has learned the first two ways of the world's way of dealing with sorrow. Bury your feelings. Replace the loss as soon as you can. Several years later, Johnny's bike is stolen. And once again, he's upset. And dad, once again, is trying to help in every way he can. And so he says, hey, buddy, shake it off. We'll get you a new one soon. Bury your feelings, replace the loss as soon as you can, and Johnny's learning. When John's in high school, he falls in love with a girl, and the world has never been brighter until she dumps him one day. And this time, it's not a dog or a bike. This time, it's, it's a girl that he really likes a lot. And mom comes to the rescue. This time, she tries with real sensitivity to say, Johnny, don't feel bad. There are other fish in the sea. Translation. Bury the pain, replace the loss as soon as you can. And Johnny has steps one and two down, and he'll use them the rest of his life. Later, John's grandfather dies. This is the one he fished with every summer. This is the one he felt so close to. And he found out about his grandfather's death sitting in class in school. And so somebody passed him a note. He read it. Tears began to come in his eyes. Pretty soon he was sobbing openly at his desk, and the teacher feels awkward and dismisses him, and dad picks him up and takes him home, and Johnny walks in, and there's his mom sitting there on a sofa in the living room, and he wants to go to her and hug her and cry, but dad says, don't disturb her. Uh, She needs to be alone right now. She'll be all right in a little while, and then the two of you can talk, and the third piece of the puzzle comes. Grieve alone. So John goes to his room, 
And he cries alone. And he feels a deeper loneliness than he has ever felt. And he eventually just buries those feelings too. He replaces the sense of loss. Gets involved in all this high school activities, sports and music and all kinds of things. Tries to get over this as quickly as he can. And after the funeral, he finds himself thinking about his grandfather a lot. Fishing trips and Christmas Eves, the birthdays. And it just goes on for months. And finally talks about it with his dad. And his dad's response is, just give it more time. The fourth piece, time heals all by itself. Are you keeping track with me? Bury your feelings, replace the loss as quickly as you can, grieve alone, give it time. And John gives it lots of time, but somehow in the quiet moments, he feels trapped in this sadness. He thought about his grandfather and realized he never thanked his grandfather for the fishing trips. Never thanked his grandfather for the time the fish were not biting and and they went swimming. Never thanked him for all those afternoon times. In fact, he realized he never told his grandfather he loved him. Left so many things unsaid, but it's too late. His grandfather's gone. What do you do? And he concludes, I've got to live with regret the rest of my life. That's the next piece. Live with regret. Because if there's unfinished business and someone has died or someone has moved on, There's nothing you can do about that. There's so many griefs in his life, so many pains, so many sorrows, so many times his heart has been broken that he thinks to himself, close relationships expose me to the possibility of deep pain. I never want to experience this kind of pain again. I'm going to back off from relationships. I'm going to keep an arm's length from anyone and anything that could cause me more pain. Translated, don't get close again. Wall up. Don't get close. Don't trust people again. It just hurts too much. So, our world says, society says, a typical way says, when loss comes your way, bury your feelings, replace the loss as as quick as you possibly can, grieve alone, let time heal, learn to live with bottled up regrets, and never trust again because you might get hurt again. Does any of this sound familiar? This is the way some of us grew up. This is what we learned. This is what our culture teaches us. And my question is, does anything ever get resolved? Do you ever overcome sorrow? Is there any healing that ever takes place? Or does this way of grieving leave an opened wound in your soul? I talked to a counselor one time who told me lots of people who never deal with grief wind up in ditches of alcoholism and drug abuse and workaholism and sexual addiction and, no, and, and broken relationships and excessive spending, compulsive eating, all driven by an inability to move through what happens to everyone, and that is sorrow and grief and heartbreak. Oh, so, so what's the biblical approach? What does the wonderful counselor tell us? Well, the world says, bury your feelings, mask them. Jesus says, Grieve. Grieve. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. He says, he does not say don't grieve. He says, don't grieve like, like people who don't have hope. And we have hope in Jesus. We have hope of heaven. We have the Holy Spirit with us. But having hope does not mean we don't grieve. We know that God can restore. We know that God can heal. We know he's worthy of our trust. 
even when we hurt so badly. It's like the mother who stands at the grave of her daughter and speaks six, six words as she cries, I can trust God with this. So grief and tears, they're not signs of weak faith. It's the normal response that God has given to us to the brokenness of this world. So the Scripture would say, Jesus would say, don't stuff, don't bury, don't deny, don't discount sorrow-filled feelings. Don't try to look brave. Feel your feelings. Express them. John 11 tells us that Jesus was at another location when his friend Lazarus died. And Jesus and the the guys come back to Bethany where they lived. Jesus meets with the two sisters and he sees them weeping and they head toward the grave and listen to John 11.33. Jesus saw her weeping and he saw how the people with her were weeping also. His heart was touched. He was deeply moved. Where have you buried him? He asked them. Come and see, Lord, they answered. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible speaks volumes to people in sorrow. Never think that Jesus doesn't understand your grief. Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows familiar familiar with grief. And he was not afraid of showing his emotions. We don't need to be embarrassed by them either. Somebody said, weeping is the language of the soul. It's the cleansing, it's the cleansing of our soul. It's, it's really being honest about reality. Tears don't hinder our growth. It's the way God wired us to respond. Ruthie and I were close friends with, uh, we are close friends with a woman in Memphis who told me, she said, Sam, if there's anything I want to get right, she'd had some relationships in, in the past that were not healthy, not Christian. And she said, if there's anything I want to get right, it's I want to marry a Christian man who will lead me spiritually and I can build my life with him. And she met a Christian man. Um, She went through premarital counseling with him. I gave them premarital counseling. She read books on marriage. She went to a seminar on marriage. She, She and he both went to a counselor because they both carried stuff from their, their background into marriage. After one month of marriage, her new husband kicked her out of the bedroom, locked the door. She's standing outside the door of the bedroom. She's crying, asking what is going on. He called the police and said, my wife is tearing up our house. The police came and they put her in jail. That night, she spent in jail. Early the next morning, while she is still in jail, he leaves on a business trip. She met with me, and she said, Sam, this has been a nightmare. I have cried and cried and cried and cried. And when she told me that, I thought, that's exactly what you need to do. Cry and cry and cry. You see, many people believe God wants us to walk around with a smile all the time, and that's just not realistic. He does not ask us to ignore pain. The Bible just doesn't teach that. Jesus teaches just the opposite. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a special nearness that Jesus promises to those who mourn. And you say, well, Sam, it feels like God's a million miles away from me. What you feel and what is real are not the same all the time. And you can feel something that's just not true. He's close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. So God's way to grieve is 
Don't deny your feelings. Feel them. Society's second step. Replace the loss as soon as you can. Turn the page. Get it over. Move on. Don't hang out in sad places. God's way is just the opposite. Review the loss. Hang out in sad places long enough to allow the full effect of the loss to settle in your soul. Listen to Jeremiah as he describes how God grieves. Jeremiah 8.21, my heart is crushed because my dear people are being crushed. I go about crying and grieving. I am overwhelmed with dismay. Did you know in the Old Testament it was customary for God's people to grieve for months and sometimes years of a loss? It's God's way of saying to his people, I don't I want you to stand in your pain. I want you to don't run from it. Don't gloss it over. Joseph grieved the death of his father, old Jacob, 127 days. Israel mourned for 120-year-old Moses, 30 days. Nehemiah mourned over the broken walls of Jerusalem, 120 days. David mourned his lost relationship with his son Absalom, three years. One time I asked a Christian counselor, what do you say to people who are hurting? And she said this, I tell people when they experience a loss, I tell people to slow their lives down, to reduce the pace of their life so they can reflect deeply about their loss, talk about it openly, write about it, pray about it. She said people's tendency is to want to run from pain and replace the pain with another feeling as soon as possible. To recover from pain, you have to face it, feel it, stand in it, process it before it will ever dissipate. And then she said, that's God's way. When my dad died, when my mom died, when our little granddaughter Eloise died, I didn't do that. I took a day or two off work, and I came back with a vengeance. I was at work early. I stayed late. I worked hard because I didn't like those feelings of sadness, overwhelming sorrow. That was my tendency. I suspect it's a tendency for some of us. God says, that grief is doing something in your heart. That grief is God opening your heart, maybe tearing you loose from an idol that you have. The third step of typical grief is grieve alone. And God says, grieve in community. Grieve with people. It's a huge mistake to isolate yourself when you're going through a crisis because you need the support, the encouragement. That's why God made us a church. That's why all those 160 some odd one another's are in Scripture. That's why Galatians 6 2 says, carry each other's burdens and obey the law of Christ in that way. That's why Romans 12 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And again, Jesus provides the example. Jesus blazes the way, shows us how when he faced the cross, the night before his death on the cross, scripture tells us in Matthew 26 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and became anguished and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. In other words, will you pray with me? Would you be with me in this time of sorrow? And apparently his followers learned that well, because after the cross, before the resurrection, they're gathered together in a room. Why were they there? He said, well, they were hiding. Maybe. I think they were also grieving which is why the resurrection was such brilliant, wonderful, good news uh, to them. 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul writes to some friends and says, My friends, I want you to know what a hard time we had in Asia. Our sufferings were so horrible and unbearable that death seemed certain. 
Paul just needed people to know what was going on his, in his soul. And sometimes we don't know what to say to people who are grieving. And so we don't say anything at all. My daughter was a hospital chaplain in uh, North Mississippi Medical Center for three, my wife rather, not my daughter, my wife was hospital chaplain for three years. And she shared some things that are, that are helpful that she's learned. What do you do when someone is grieving? Acknowledge the loss. Don't do what I have done. And that is, I hear someone has had a, a loss and I jot it down on a piece of paper. My intention is I'm going to call them or go by and, and visit and, and time gets away from me and I get busy and I don't know what to do and I feel paralyzed and I don't want to do it wrong and don't want to cause more pain. And, and a month goes by and I've done nothing. The worst pain you can feel is to have a friend who knows you're experiencing loss and they don't do anything. They don't say anything. We don't, we don't mean to bring pain into people's lives, but we let indecision keep us from acknowledging the loss, from doing what Scripture says. Grieve with those who, who grieve. So do it wrong. Stumble and bumble your way through it, but let someone who's going through a season of loss know that you know. Acknowledge it. Would you do that with the staff here? Because they've suffered a punch in the gut this last year. In fact, I would recommend when you see one of the staff here that you ask two questions. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? I would say when you see one of the elders or you see one of the deacons, you ask the same question. How are you doing? Because they've had a punch in the gut. How are you doing? How can we pray for you? Give them the freedom, the permission to grieve and express emotion. Free them to talk about the loss. Our daughter Sarah Sings on the praise team of her church, Fellowship Bible Church in Cabot, Arkansas. Reinforced this to me. She said, after the death of, of Eloise, she said, Dad, I want people to talk about Eloise. Some of my friends won't even mention her. They change the subject. They don't understand. I want to talk about her. It keeps her alive in my, my memory. We're going to offer practical help, and some of us do this so well. Uh, bring some food, some meals, child care, clean the home, provide some transportation, uh, watch the kids. Follow up afterwards. After the funeral, that's the starting line. That's not the finish line. And a lot of us just kind of fade away after, after a funeral. And the person is left there all alone. Be full. This came from one, from one of our, uh, our staff. Be fully present. Put your cell phone down. Look people in the eye. Listen to them. Listen to them. And there are things you, you don't want to do. Don't make careless statements. Well, he's better off now. God's will. Uh, I, know, I know how you feel. You don't. I don't. Jesus does. Romans 8, 28. You know, there's a time to share that, but not immediately. It does not help to minimize people's pain. Even if we're pointing to something that's true and good, the, it's best just to say, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. I, I just can't imagine how you feel. I am so Sorry. And can I recommend you eliminate the word at least, those two words at least, from your vocabulary when you're meeting with someone going through grief and loss. Someone loses a child and you go, well, at least you're young enough to have another one. Someone loses their job, well, at least you got skills that are marketable. Job lost his wealth, his health, his children, 
three friends came to sit down with him and said nothing for seven days. That was the best thing they did. Then they began to try to explain what it, and it just caused so much more pain, and they were wrong on top of that. Our typical response is we want to fix the problem, fix the problem quickly. Don't attempt to answer the why question. This is not a time to be the Bible answer man. It's not time to give theological explanations. There will come a time for that. They don't need you talking at them. They need you sitting beside them, weeping if you can. Don't encourage them to get over it. I made this mistake the first time I was a pastor. There was an elderly lady, Pauline Witcher, in the church. She lost her husband a year before, and she was still grieving so terribly. And being a young, dumb pastor, I, I, I said, you need to get over it. It just hurt her so deeply. Some wounds just don't heal in this life. It will take heaven to heal some wounds. Grief is not something you get over. It's just something you, you get through. Paul killed Christians before he became before he met Jesus, and to the end of his life, he was still thinking about it. The horror of it was still in his mind. Read 2 Timothy. Because there are some sorrows we just carry to our grave. Grief, someone said, grief is not a disease that heals. It's more like an amputation that produces a lifelong limp. And everybody grieves differently. So it's not our job to figure out a timeline for someone. Don't discourage the expression of emotion, even if it makes you uncomfortable, don't be alarmed with off-the-wall comments. People when they're in grief and shock say all kinds of things. That it's not a time to correct them. There will come that time. Grieve in community. Number four, our world says time will heal, like magically, mystically, time will heal. If you think time heals, go sit in the doctor's waiting room and see how much better you feel after an hour. Time doesn't heal anything in and of itself. The Bible teaches ultimately there is only one who heals, and he's intentionally called the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. So ask the Comforter to touch and comfort and restore your soul. You know, 50, 60 years ago, industrialists thought if you buried toxic waste, it, it would just go away. Time would make it go away. And we know that doesn't happen. It just seeps into the water table, pollutes everything, kills animals, injures people. Buried grief does not go away. Time, raw time doesn't make it go away. It just kind of leaks into, our, into who we are. God's approach is the Holy Spirit is the only comforter. Act, reach out, oh Holy Spirit, would you come touch my broken heart, touch my sorrowing heart, bring me your comfort. And if you have unfinished business, someone who dies, someone has moved away, our world says, get used to living with regret. There's nothing you can do. And God's word says, there is something you can do. You can reconcile your side of the equation. I have a friend who uh, had a terrible relationship with his dad. They, they were in conflict, and his dad died. And he didn't know what to do. He said, I, I guess I just I got to live with the fact that my dad and I were in such conflict, and, and then he died. He went to a wise Christian counselor who told him about Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. And he said, the counselor said, why don't you write your dad a letter? Why don't you say the things you would like to say to him? And why don't you gather some friends and before the Lord, read the letter. 
seeking to reconcile your side. And my friend did that. And I have, I have used that in talking with people since that happened. My friend did that. He told me later, he said, the, the load just kind of lifted off my, my, my shoulders. I did what I could to live peaceably with my father. He made peace on his side. So God's counsel is you don't have to live with a backpack of regret your entire life. Maybe you want to try to do some, something like that. And then the world says, don't ever get close because if you do, you're going to get burned. Once burned, it's twice smart. And once a loss hurts you deeply, you just want to put the wall up. You don't want to get close. And to be honest, that makes perfect sense to me if you're not a Christian. If you don't have Christ at the center of your life, that makes all the sense in the world to me. Imagine a couple whose house burns down. They're able to get all the kids out, and they're standing on the sidewalk and watching their house collapse, and they are grateful to God. Not because the house burned, but because their treasure, their kids, are safe. And what happens is people make all kinds of things their treasure, and they lose it, and the pain is unconsolable. So the scripture says, put Jesus at the center of your life. From cover to cover, the Bible says, if he is your treasure, he's not vulnerable to loss. Remember Jesus' words, long with you always to the very end of the world. Remember his words, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Translation, if I'm at the center of your life, you might lose your shelter, you might lose your fortune, you might lose your health, you might even lose your spouse. You will never lose me. If I'm the treasure at the center of your life, I will be there, which means Christians have a special capability of moving through grief. Not quickly, not without pain, not easily, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, with Jesus at the very center of our life. We know he will not leave his children in the middle of our sorrow. But what happens is we lash our heart to something else that can be lost. We draw strength from that thing. And you put anything else but Jesus at the very center of your life, and you lose it, and you feel like life is not worth going on. You do that once or twice, and you say, I'm never going to do that again. The Bible says your heart is too fragile to expose it to that kind of thing. So invite Jesus to be the very center of your life. Rest in the fact that you can't lose him. He will be with you, and it changes your perspective. It helps you begin to see that Pain is just one tool that God is using to deepen me. God's not trying to fix me or whip me into shape. He's a tender father who's with me in this moment. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He has a purpose for every pain. He has purposes. And in fact, one of the greatest ministries we have can come out of our pain. And He gives us a church family. There's a big difference between the world's way and God's way. So it is decision time. Some of us are at a crossroads right now. We can take the world's way, which hardens our heart, calcifies our heart, or you can let your pain drive you deeper into fellowship with Jesus. Don't stuff the emotions down. Being a Christian is all, not all smiles and laughter. Let the tears, let the wounds that we've suffered as a church you've suffered in your life, let them take you deeper with Jesus.
Ray Ortland says, deep wounds deepen us. And some of us are at a crossroads right now. And for God's sake and for the sake of your soul and the sake of the people in your life, go God's way. In the power of Christ, you can overcome sorrow, not easily and not overnight. But the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will be with you. I want you to watch a little video, and then I want to say a final word. So watch this video. <laughs> 